Galatians 6, 11 to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would, that would compel you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who receive circumcision do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But far be it from me to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule, upon the Israel of God. Henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. I visited Andrew Hoppenstein in the hospital a couple times uh, last week, and uh, we talked about how strange and yet not so strange it, it is that the more mature you become as a believer, the less worthy you feel to be a child of God. The reason it seems strange to us is that it's true that the closer you get to Christ, the more his character rubs off on you. We are moving from one degree of glory to another, into his image. And yet, the thing that makes it not so strange is that the closer you get to the real thing, the more clearly you can see your shortfall. Andrew had this great illustration. He said, uh, picture yourself sweeping a hallway, and uh, it looks like you're doing a great job, just all the dirt moving away, and then all of a sudden you move into a big beam of light coming through a window, and you can see the real state of affairs. The air is just full of dust, and you wonder how in the world you can breathe that kind of air. And that's the way it is, for we... For us who walk in the light with Christ, there's a, a mingling of joy and remorse that we Christians will have to put up with, I think, until Jesus comes back. We walk in the light and we enjoy his fellowship and his forgiveness, and it's great. But his light makes us ever so aware of our persistent failures to walk exactly in his footsteps and to walk by the Holy Spirit. And so there's grief, there's repentance in need. Jonathan Edwards has a great sensitivity to the real experience of true Christians. Listen to what he said. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy, leaving the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a little child, and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. 
That's true. Today we come to the close of six months on the book of Galatians. And uh, probably for me more than anybody else, it's, it's uh, nostalgic. Um, I told Noel that uh, it's been like being asked by a very important and wonderful person to be their representative and deliver their message. And in the course of all the conversations you've had with that person, you come to know them and love them very much. And then realizing that uh, their ministry is finished for probably quite a while and they're going to leave and you have to uh, say farewell. And that's the way I feel with uh, Galatians. And it's made even more poignant by the fact that I know as a go-between Galatians and you, I haven't done nearly as good a job as that great man Galatians deserves. But here we are at the end, and I'm asking myself the question, what ought I to look for at Bethlehem to see whether or not the word is bearing fruit? And Andrew Hoffenstein and Jonathan Edwards warned me, don't look for perfection. Don't look for people who are proud of their spiritual accomplishments. Don't even look for people who are rejoicing in God but don't have that joy tinged by the remorse of repentance. So what do I look for? How can I tell whether I have run in vain? Well, what I want to do is, is uh, just let Paul pose the criterion for us here at the end. And notice that in these last verses of the book, what he does is contrast two mindsets. One is very evil. It's the one he's been trying to drive out of the churches for six chapters. And the other is beautiful. And it's the one he's trying to live by and teach to the rest of us. He says that the second mindset is a rule that we have to be in sync with in order to enjoy the peace and mercy of God. Let me put it like this. Suppose I have the power to enclose in my hand two things to offer you. And in this hand, I put the peace of God that you could enjoy from all eternity and the mercy of God that guarantees forgiveness for all your sins. And I wrap it up in one hand and hold it out to you. And then in this hand, I gather out of the world everything possible that the world could give you absolutely everything to the highest degree that it could give you by way of status, money, leisure, health, big business savvy, a spouse, everything. But no mercy from God and no peace with God. And I made you the choice. Which would you want? Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And so it seems to me that only people who are in the grip of a massive satanic deception and delusion will take the left hand and all that the world has to give instead of the right hand. But I've prayed and surely the Holy Spirit is in this place this morning to break that delusion. 
And enable me to be confident that all of you right now really do want peace with God and mercy from God. You like to wake up at midnight and not be terrified at the thought of hell, but peaceful in the love of God. You like to get up early in the morning and not feel plagued with bad feelings of guilt and misery, but have peace settle down over you. Therefore, I can't help but believe that all of you regard verse 16 as of tremendous importance. A big freeway sign this morning on the road of your life telling you how to leave the road of folly and delusion and get on the road to mercy and peace and stay on it. The verse says, peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule. The mercy of God and the peace of God belong to people whose lives are in sync with some rule here. And since only a foolish delusion would keep you from wanting God's mercy and peace, therefore, I think you must all be eager to know what this rule is. If you're not, then either you regard the word of God as nonsense or you're in the grip of a massive delusion. It is absolutely crucial that you find out what this rule is here. If you want peace and mercy. So let's start at verse 11. Walk through the text together and I'll try to show you where I think that rule is described. Verse 11 is is a beautiful little touch. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. I think what he did was reach over and take the stylus out of his secretary's hand. He'd probably been dictating this letter. Paul had some trouble with, with uh, what do you call it? Falsifications is the only word I can think of. Forgeries. He had some trouble with forgeries. We know from Second Thessalonians. So he probably made a practice of uh, using at least part of the letter to give his distinctive script. I'm going to close this letter with my handwriting. See, there it is. Remember it? Probably wrote like my dad, just half the page when he signs the letter at the end. He takes the pen out of his hand, and this gives a special poignancy to these last verses. This is vintage Paul. I think it's all vintage Paul because it's just straight dictated, but here his hand is in it. What's he going to say? What will the, the, the apostle say in his last paragraph? He sets out for us two mindsets. The first one is evil, the second one is good, and I think the second one is the rule that we're supposed to follow in order to have peace with God. But let's look at the evil one first, since it comes first in verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who receive circumcision do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Well, here it is, folks, for the last time. Let's look at it one more time carefully and then shove it from us forever. It's the mindset of legalism. A person who uses the law as a vehicle of pride is a legalist. The issue is circumcision, as it has been, several times 
And Paul poses the question, do Gentile believers have to be circumcised in order to have right standing with God and full acceptance with him? The Judaizers say yes, and they avoid persecution from the big shots in Jerusalem. Paul says no, and he gets persecuted by the synagogues everywhere he goes. What's the motive of the Judaizers here? Paul says the motive is twofold. Notice the way it's described at the end of verse 12 and the end of verse 13. They compel you to be circumcised that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 13. They desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. The motive was twofold. To avoid pokes and wind strokes. When all is said and done, there are just two things Paul wants to warn us to avoid. Please, he said, the last thing I want to warn you of. Don't let your mind be enslaved to the fear of human rejection. And don't let your mind be enslaved to the love of human praise. Which are really the same temptation, aren't they, at root. Why are they so dangerous, these two temptations? The reason is because the person whose mind is governed by fear of being rejected and love of being praised cannot embrace the cross of Christ. They cannot embrace Christ crucified. Legalists have to substitute morality for the cross. Because the cross puts an end to all pride and opens you for persecution. But according to these two verses, these people want to avoid persecution more than they love the cross. And they want to win strokes from the big shots in Jerusalem and make a good show in the the flesh. And so they have to reject the cross. You must reject the cross if you love those two things or fear one and love the other. People who don't have the grace to humble themselves before God and before man will reject the cross. Let's look at those two facts, before God and before man. Before God, what does Christ crucified do to us? Christ crucified strips us of all our cloak of merit. It reveals the desperation with which we stand before God and the dependence we have on mercy. The love of God came to us in the cross of Jesus Christ so that we would know as we stand before him what our real need is and what would become of us had we not had Jesus. It's morally impossible to be proud at the foot of the cross. So for those who don't want to humble themselves before God, they cannot embrace the cross. But there's another reason why the cross is repulsive to legalists, and that's because the cross also means you must humble yourself before men and maybe even be persecuted by men as something very unsavory. Here's the way Jesus put it. Except a man take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. You cannot cherish the the Christ of Calvary if you will not join him on the Calvary road. You cannot cherish Christ crucified 
if you will not join him on the Calvary Road. But the Calvary Road is where people spit and laugh and poke. And so if your life is governed by the desire to avoid that, you can't join him on the Calvary Road. Which is what Jesus said. No man can be my disciple unless. So here's my first answer to the question, how do I assess whether the word of God is bearing fruit at Bethlehem from Galatians? This mindset of legalism that uses morality as a vehicle of pride that fears the rejection of men, that loves the praise of important people, that mindset at Bethlehem, if the word of God is bearing fruit, will be on the wane. And I think it is. And if I didn't think it were, I'd be hard put in my ministry to press on. I could tell you, just from this past week, of a few occasions where I've seen in some of you victory, over that mindset, but I don't want to give you a spiritually big head, so I won't mention the details. But thank you for encouraging me. Let's look at the positive side. Verses 14 and 15 are another mindset altogether. The mindset that Paul himself wants to live by and wants to teach and transmit to Bethlehem Baptist Church. And I think that the mindset of verses 14 and 15 is the rule of verse 16 which if we follow, we will enjoy peace with God. Let's read it. But far be it from me to glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Let's go backwards in the text and ask, what is the new creation? I think the new creation is what exists when the old Paul is crucified and dies. And a new Paul comes into existence. The new Paul, what is he? A new birth, that's the way John describes it. Newness of life, describes in Roman, Romans 6. Let's, let's try to define what this new Paul is, or this new creation, by looking at a couple of parallels in the book. First, cast your eyes back a chapter to verse 6 of chapter 5. 5, 6 and 6, 15 are very similar in wording. Verse uh, 15 of chapter 6 says, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, see how similar it is to verse 6 of chapter 5. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but, and then of saying a new creation, he says, faith working through love. So I infer from that parallel that the new Paul spoken of in verse 15 of chapter 6 is none other than the Paul who has faith in Christ and lives a life of love empowered by that faith. The new creation is not the old self-reliant Paul who boasts in his religious distinctives, but the new Christ-reliant Paul who now subordinates his own wishes to the needs of other people. 
confirmation of that in chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. A verse that I hope all of you have memorized, and if you haven't, we'll memorize very soon. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's the new thing that comes into existence when the old Paul dies in this verse? Christ. Christ in me. That's the new creation, maybe. But he goes on, and the connection between Christ in me and what follows is so crucial. He says, nevertheless, I do live, and the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. So, there's an old Paul who died... There's a Christ who takes his place, but then there's this other new Paul who lives by faith. And the connection between the new Paul and Christ is this. If you you live in such a way that you lean on somebody real hard, it would be fair to say that so much dependence is put on them, it's as if they're leading the life. In other words, if you depend on somebody so much that your feet kind of come up off the ground, then they are living through you. Faith is it, faith it is, that activates the power of Christ in our life. So the new creation spoken of here in chapter 6 is a mindset of utter reliance on Christ day by day, Or, to put it another way, it is the Spirit of Christ ruling, reigning in us through faith. But notice in verse 14, Paul, in his last effort, with the pen in his own hand, to describe the new mindset that he wants to come into being, doesn't use the word faith. He doesn't uh, go back to his favorite word. Why? Why does he say, far be it from me to glory? Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't he say something like, far be it from me if I don't trust, if I don't have faith in the cross. Well, the the history of the Christian church is replete with groups and people who have ripped the heart right out of faith and turned it into a dead, dry, formal, intellectual agreement with certain theological facts or a church position. And that doesn't save anybody. And Paul helps guard against that error by the language he uses in this verse 14. He says the issue is not merely whether you ascribe with your mind to this cross certain saving characteristics. The issue is do you glory in it? Do you boast in it? Do you cherish it? On Christmas Day, when people come over to visit you and see what presents you got, is it the cross you take out first and say, look at that? Because if your heart isn't engaged with the cross, something like that, then you don't esteem it. And it may be that you don't rely on it. Now, Paul had a double way in verse 14 of showing what he means to glory in the cross. By the cross, he said, the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Here's what I think he means. 
Since I met Christ, everything that the world could offer me has become like a despised, worthless, rejected corpse on a cross. When something is crucified, it's rejected and scorned and despised, cast outside the city. That's what became of the world when Paul met Christ. His affections were utterly revolutionized. He said in Philippians, I count everything as loss, insert crucified, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul was just swallowed up by the love of Christ manifest on the cross. And the benefits of the world were just like a cold, ashen-faced cadaver laid in a tomb after crucifixion. He puts it another way, though. He says, I am crucified to the world, not just the world to me. If we use the same meaning in both halves of the sentence, then what we'll say about this is, when the world looks at Paul, he is rejected, despised, of no value, like a corpse. And that's exactly what Paul said the world regarded his ministry as. 2 Corinthians 6, we are treated as impostors, yet we are true. We are treated as unknown, yet well-known. We are treated as dying. And behold, we live. As far as the world is concerned, a life devoted to Christ crucified is a throwaway life. Like an old McDonald's hamburger carton squashed by a lot of tires out in the parking lot. It's just a throwaway life if you devote yourself to Christ crucified. Look where you end up. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 4. We have become and are now the refuse of the world, the off-scouring of all things. Don't come to Jesus if you want popularity or esteem in the world. So we can paraphrase Galatians 6.14 by saying, not only is the world crucified to Paul and Paul to the world, but the world is refuse to Paul and Paul is refuse to the world. Now that's very negative. But he only mentions the negative in order to accent the positive. He only mentions how he has no affection for the world in order to accent how much affection he has for Jesus Christ crucified. The status of pleasures that Greek hedonism and Jewish religiosity could offer Paul were regarded by Paul as a big pile of garbage. That's a literal translation of Philippians 3 8. Refuse, garbage. One scene in history held him captive. You know what that scene was. Golgotha, a cross, and the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That scene arrested, enslaved, captivated Paul and held him a bond of love all his life, as it has many of you. Now, verse 16 says, Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule. And I think the rule 
that it's referring to is the rule described in verses 14 and 15 in contrast to verses 12 and 13. So what I want to do is close by listing very briefly four contrasts in summary. Four contrasts between the mindset that enjoys peace and mercy from God and the mindset that doesn't. And I'm going to call the evil mindset self-exaltation and the good mindset Christ-exaltation. And I hope as you look at those two sets of scriptures, you'll see that that's, that's in fact what is being described there. First contrast, self-exalters desire to make a good show in religious rituals because they crave the applause of important people. Christ-exalters, did I just say? I meant to say self-exalters, didn't I? Christ-exalters regard the pleasure of the applause of men as a pile of garbage in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. And so they're not men-pleasers. They don't kowtow to whether or not they're going to be applauded when they take a stand for Jesus. Second contrast. Self-exalters fear persecution and rejection from men more than they cherish the cross of Christ. But Christ-exalters expect and accept rejection and persecution from a world that crucified their Savior. Here's the way Paul put it. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Christ exalters don't fear men. Christ is their strength, their shield, and their very great reward. Third, self-exalters regard outward forms as the essence of religious life. But Christ-exalters regard an inner new creation as the essence of the religious life. Self-exalters can manage to clean up the outside while leaving the root of pride utterly unsevered. Morality and religion become a convenient vehicle for the expression of their own self-exaltation. But Christ-exalters know that in order for Christ to be king, they have to die. The root of pride must be wholly severed. Fourth, self-exalters remove the stumbling block of the cross by ignoring or despising its implications. Self-exalters have to avoid the old rugged cross because its splinters always burst the balloon of self-exaltation, without exception. But Christ-exalters, they glory in the cross. They cherish it above all things, and I think that's where Paul and Christ want me to end this series. 
None of us will be saved by our perfection. We don't have it and we will not have it until Jesus comes and we see him as he is. None of us will be saved by anything that we do to merit justification or final salvation. Those who want to exalt Christ look to the cross, not to themselves. Right standing with God or justification, as he calls it, is not merited by works. It is a free gift to those who glory in the work God did where we couldn't. Therefore, I urge you this morning, come to the cross in your heart. I can't help but believe that in a crowd this size on a summer where people visit and others are troubled, that some of you have not come to the cross lest the bubble of your pride be burst. Come in your heart right now. And those of you who are there and have put up your tent and taken your stand, glory in the cross. Glory in the cross. Cherish it. Love it. Live for it. Prize it. Make it that present that you show off more than anything else. Because the cross is the basis of all our prayer. The cross is the guarantee of all God's love. The cross is the security and certainty of all the forgiveness you will ever need. The cross is the ground of our hope. The cross is the fountain of of everlasting peace and midnight peace and the fountain of mercies, new every morning and for all eternity. Come to the cross, glory in the cross. Amen. Shall we stand for prayer? O sacred head now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, and yet, though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine.